you all for being here so much. We're so excited. We seems like we booked this months and months ago. Uh, so the day has come. Um, we're, of course, hosting Morgan Talty here tonight about his book, Night of the Living Res, and he'll be in conversation with Gregory Brown, Greg Brown, sorry, uh, about the book. Um, before I introduce these two, uh, I just want to read a land acknowledgement from the Portland Public Library. Um, acknowledgement is a simple way of showing respect and a step toward correcting the stories and practices that erase indigenous people's history and culture and toward inviting the, and honoring the truth. Portland Public Library would like to acknowledge that the land on which we gather is the occupied and unceded territory of the Wabanaki, the people of the place where the sun first looks our way who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. We extend our respect and gratitude to the many indigenous people and their ancestors whose rich histories and vibrant communities include the Abenaki, Maliseet, Mi'kmaq, Passamaquoddy, and Penobscot nations, and all the native communities who have lived in Chihuahuankeg for over 3,000 generations in what is now called New England and the Canadian Maritimes. We thank them for their strength and resilience in protecting this land and aspire to uphold our responsibilities according to their example. Um, so now to introduce these writers. Morgan uh, is a citizen of the Penobscot Nation and this is his debut book. It's a collection of short stories. His work has appeared in the Georgia and he was named one of narratives 30 below 30. Uh, he's just starting his book tour so we really appreciate him being here because he's a busy person. <laughs> Uh, Greg grew up along Penobscot Bay. His debut novel, which he spoke about at the library's literary lunch last year, is called The Lowering Days, and his work has appeared in Narrative, Tin House, Epic, and other publications. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you both for being here, and uh, I'll turn it over to Greg. Uh, thank you, Rachel, for the lovely introduction. Um, just wanted to thank everybody for being here. This is just really exciting as you know, this is kind of like the launch for this book here, right? This is, it came out Tuesday. Um, it's fresh in the world, so congrats to you, Morgan. And thank you. I'm really excited to be able to gather with everybody here and celebrate what's a big hearted and really amazing book. Um, so I think, Morgan, you wanna read from the book to kind of start us off here? Yeah, um, everyone can hear me. With it, okay. Um, I was going to read from the book. I also just want to, you know, for those of you who are on the fence about whether or not you want to buy the book, I thought I'd read you this review. Um, <laughs> the synopsis of this book had me hooked, but unfortunately, the book itself proved to be a huge disappointment. The writing style was chaotic and very difficult to follow. Disappointing. <laughs> so if you didn't know whether or not you should buy it, now you know. It, is that a Goodreads review by any chance? Amazon, actually. Oh, yeah, th yeah. those are bad, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, like, really looking forward to them all. I don't know why. Um, okay, but thank you all for being here and celebrating. You know, this is my first in-person book launch event, and it's a fantastic place and filled with fantastic people, so thank you. Um, I'm just going to read the first story in my collection called Burn. Burn. Winter, and I walked the sidewalk at night along banks of hard snow. I'd come from Rab's apartment off the reservation. Rab, this white guy with a wide mouth and eyes that closed up when he laughed, sold pot. He was all no bullshit, too. I had asked for a gram, and after he weighed it and put it in a plastic baggie and held it out to me, 
I reached into my pants and jacket pockets looking for the cash among the cigarette wrappers and pocket knife. And he didn't believe me as I acted the part and kept saying, shit, 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 it must have fell out on the walk over here. Uh, he shook his head and took the weed out of the baggie and put it back into his mason jar. I ain't smoking you up, he said. And so then I said, fuck you, Rab, I really did lose the money, you'll see. Watch when I come back here in 30 minutes with the money I dropped, you'll feel stupid then. He shrugged a sorry man and I slammed his door shut as I left. At the bridge to the reservation, the river was still frozen, ice shining white-blue under a full moon. The sidewalk on the bridge hadn't been shoveled since the last nor'easter crapped snow in November, and I walked in the boot prints everyone made who walked the walk to Overtown to get pot or catch the bus to wherever it was us Skeesians had to go, which really wasn't anywhere because everything we needed, except pot, was on the res. Well, except Best Buy or Bed Bath & Beyond, but those natives who bought 4K Ultra DVDs or fresh white doilies had cars, wouldn't be taking the bus like me or Fellas did each day to the methadone clinic. That was another thing the res didn't have, a methadone clinic. But we had sacred grounds where sweats and peyote ceremonies happened once a month, except since I had chosen to take methadone, I was ineligible to participate in native spiritual practice, according to the doc on the res. Natives damning natives. The roads on the res were quiet, trees bending under the weight of snow, and when I passed the frozen swamp, a voice moaned out. I stopped walking. Nothing, so I kept on going on the sparkling road until I heard it again. Who's that? I yelled. The moan came again. It was a man, somewhere in the swamp. I got closer, listening. There it was, a low and breathy noise, and with my cold ear I followed it. The swamp was frozen solid, the snow blown in piles, and so I slid over the ice looking for the source of the noise. Moonlight through bare tree limbs lit the swamp, and caught among the tree stumps and solid snow was a person sprawled out on the ground. He was trying to sit up but kept falling back, like he'd just done 1,000 crunches and was too sore to do just one more. It was Fellas. Fellas, I said, standing over him. He tried to sit up but something pulled him back down. Fuck you, Fellas said, help me. He groaned, shivered. He didn't say how to help him, so I had to squat down to get a better look. I flicked my li uh, lighter and his purple lip quivered. Hurry, he said. Fellas, I said, I can't, I can't help you if I don't know what's the matter with you. My hair, he said. I looked at it with the lighter's flame. Holy, I said, and I laughed. Instead of the tight braid that shined, Fellas's hair had come undone, and it was frozen into the snow. Get me out, D, he said. D, get me out. At first, I tried to pull the hair out from the snow, tried to chip the snow away, but his hair wouldn't come loose, and so I yanked and Fellas screamed. Lift your head up, I said. I opened my pocket knife, and at the click of the blade, Fellas spoke. Wait, wait, he said. Don't cut it. What do you want me to do? Tell the ice to let go, I said. Fellas spit. Go to my house and to get boiling water. I closed the pocket knife. Fellas, I said, by the time I got back here, the water would be chilled. He was quiet. As if something walked around or among us, the ice cracked and echoed somewhere in the swamp. The moon shone bright, and I looked. There was nobody but us. I have to cut it, I said. You ain't getting out if I don't. Fellas asked if I had a cigarette, and when I told him no, he cursed. Fucking bullshit. Fucking goddamn winner. What the fuck? I laughed. It ain't funny, D. Look, I said, you want me to cut my braid, too? Fellas took a deep breath and he coughed and gagged. No, he said, just cut it. I gotta get home. I'm sick. I opened the pocket knife again, grabbed his hair in a fistful and cut. When I got through the last bit of hair, Fellas rolled over and away from where he'd been stuck. He rubbed his head like he just woke up. I helped him stand and we slipped all over the ice on our way out of the swamp. Through dry heaves, Fellas said he'd missed the bus to the methadone that morning, methadone clinic that morning. No shit, I said, because I didn't see him on the bus or at the clinic and he thought some booze would be good before he got sick from not having any methadone. He'd had a bit of booze left that afternoon when he decided to go see Rab to get some pot, and on the way he'd stopped off in the swamp to feel the quiet that came with too much drinking, 
and when he plopped down in the snow, he dozed right off. When he woke up, his hair was frozen in the snow. I got him to his mom's, Beth's, where he still lived. I walked fine, he walked fine by himself to the door, but I walked with him up the steps. I never thought I'd scalp a fellow tribal member, I said. Fuck off, he said. He fumbled in his pocket for his house key. You want to smoke, I said. Didn't you listen? I didn't make it to Rab's. He unlocked the door. I'll go for you, I said. Give me the cash. Fellas looked at me. 20 minutes, I said. I'll run there and back while you, warm up, while you warm up your pretty bald head. He gave me 30 bucks, and I didn't ask where he got it from. Yesterday, he said he didn't have any money. 20 bag, fellas said. And stop at Jim's and get some tall boys and a bag of chips. Any kind but Humpty Dumpty chips. Down fellas' driveway, I imagined the look on Rab's face when I gave him the money. What'd I tell you? How about that gram? D, fellas yelled. One more thing. Bring me my hair so we can burn it. Don't want spirits after us. We're damned anyway, I said, but I guess I'll get your hair. I kept going, wondering, hair or pot first? Pot made the most sense. It would look strange having to set the hair and ice down like a soaked mop on the counter at Jim's while I reached in my pocket for Fellas' money. Jim, that old wood booger, would say, we don't take those anymore. I'd look him square in his sagging face and say, I ain't trading no hair, you old fucker, and I'd smack down on the counter a $10 bill for the tall boys and chips. With the chains jingling in my pocket, I'd walk to Rab's and he'd say, get that hair out of here, it's dripping on my floor. And I'd have to plop the hair on the muddy white floor in the hallway while Rab reweighed the same nugs he'd weighed earlier for me. No, I'd grab Fellas' hair from the swamp on my way home. With Fellas on his unmade bed, me on a torn bean bag in the corner, each of us with a tall boy in the pot smoke haze and gray of the room, we'd keep poking and squeezing the hair, waiting for it to dry, waiting to burn it. Thank you. Okay, so I love that you read Burn. Um, I, um, I, I've read several of these stories years ago before they came out in this book, and I've been sitting with them and reading them you know, in the galley in preparation for the book coming out. And I've just been waiting to kind of hear Fellas and Dee's back and forth um, you know, verbally, and it, it doesn't disappoint. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I love how they have this kind of combination of like, this super contentious relationship and super love-filled relationship. Um, that, that kind of goes back and forth. So I've got like, several questions that I want to ask you, Morgan, and kind of talk about here, and then we'll turn it over to the audience because we want to make sure that like, you know, we hear your questions and, and allow you to kind of get your voices into the discussion here. So um, I think the thing that I most love about your writing is its big-heartedness um, and its compassion. And throughout Night of the Living Res, it, it doesn't seem to matter like how messed up the characters are or how badly they're messing up. You always seem to, to bring a certain love and tenderness and just um, care for them. And I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you approach writing compassion, creating compassionate characters, and, and treating your characters with kindness um, throughout all situations. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if I have the best answer for that. It's so hard. I think... Sorry. Yeah, I know. It's fine. It's, it's good. I get the tough questions, you know, aimed at me before I head out for other stuff, too. Um, but I think just compassion is a big part of my life, I think. And, you know, I, you know, I'm not... I would never say this book is autobiographical by any means at all, but there are a lot of things in it that, you know, theme-wise theme were things I experienced. And you know, I just found, you know, in, in my family, you know, that love and compassion were the essential elements to get through 
tough situations um, and forgiveness in, in a way. And you know, I there, there's some great fiction out there by writers who I admire like a lot. And some of it, you know, tends to fail to get at that sense of compassion. Um, and I've always seen it, and I'm like, but what happens if we, you know, we add this in there? What if we, you know, don't just look at tragedy all the time, and you know, we consider how we can find some sort of love in this terrible moment? And I don't know. I think that's just how I kind of want to live, and so it's sort of maybe second nature in 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 the book and, and in my writing. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And th those tend to be the books that that I love the most, or the, the ones that aren't afraid to be earnest, or to be compassionate, to 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 go beyond just 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 the hard times, so to speak. Um, you know, and I know in my own life, you know, and I think in the lives of many of us here, it's been that ability to be compassionate towards the people who have wronged us and who are we are wronging and to turn back and come back to them that can, sustains us and, and keeps us going. Um, sorry to give you a hard one first. <laughs> that's all right, that's okay. <laughs> so I, um, I love Link story collections and I don't know if we have other like Link story collection geeks or fans in the room here. Uh, there's such a really, really fascinating genre on their own. And I'm kind of curious how this came together for you as a linked collection. Um, you know, was it always going to be a link collection? Did you find yourself just returning to, to D and his narrative? Um, also, the, the choice to have a link collection that stays in first person the entire time, um, you know, or, or, or how you went about deciding first person versus third, just some of the process behind how this became this book. Yeah, so I. Um the first story I actually wrote for this book it was Night of the Living Res, which is like the second to last story. Um, and I wrote that in 2015. And when I went into my MFA program in 2017, I was like, I'll write a story collection because I had written some stories from David's point of view. And I wrote this story collection and it was like 15 or 16 stories told from David's point of view. And I finished it and I was like, this sucks. Um, <laughs> and it was so bad because, you know, the thing is, is with, you know, you, you'd said, you know, it's, I think it's hard to find a story collection that's linked that has first person throughout. There's very few. And yeah, and, and first person prevents its, or presents its own challenges, right? And, and what we're able to narrate. So that can be tricky too. Yeah. And with story collections themselves, you know, they're, they're very, they're versatile in the types of stories that are there, Absolutely. you know, you read one and you finish it and then you have new characters usually, a new situation, um, themes are probably the same, but with this book I had David really, you know, I was like, I'll start with him as a boy and then move all the way until he's a young adult in Night of the Living Res and I did that and like I said, it sucked, it was so bad. <laughs> there was like five stories that were good and I was like, well, whatever, I'll just put the book away and I'll go do something else and I, for the longest time I kept hearing this name I'm not crazy. Um, I kept hearing this name in the morning, Fellas, and I was like, I don't know who this is. But I'd also heard this story about a guy getting his hair frozen in the snow. And I had tried to write it as an essay, um, but I could not get close enough to the story because I had heard it from somebody who had heard it from somebody else. So I was like, I'll write it as fiction. And that became Burn. And when I was writing Burn, I had no intention for this to be David at all. I was like, this is... I got to the line where fella says, D, get me out, fella said, D, get me out. Um, or get me out, D, fella said, D, get me out. And I wanted to say David really badly because I had been writing nothing but David. And I just put D as a placeholder and I was like, I'll figure out who it is later on. And later on I was like, wait, is this David grown up? And I was like, what happened? So that completely brought the whole story collection back to life. And I was like, I'm going to figure out who this D character is. And I just started writing these, these stories from D's point of view. 
you know, trying to figure out what went wrong. And a lot of revision went into the process of, you know, having to go back and forth. And this is just to say, I don't plan a single thing. Um, it just, whatever happens, happens. And this just happened to sort of, I guess, go my way, I, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, <laughs> totally went your yeah, way. <laughs> yeah. But it, is, but it is hard with first person because it's like you are so limited and it's like you want to, like that's one of the reasons why the first version was so bad is because you're getting the same voice over and over right. again. But with this, you know, there, this is punctuated. This has like a child sort of voice and then there's the, you know, adult version of David um, who's a completely different person and it's kind of like how did we get from here to here, right? And it's not until the end that you're like, oh, no, I get it. You know, I can see why. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I always find it interesting, like, I'll make moves in my fiction and feel like, you know, that this wasn't working and then somehow I made it work. And I, I, I'm not maybe consciously aware of how I did that. And I think it's interesting how, like, we all have problems in our work that we'll, we'll solve just as we're doing other things in our life. We'll kind of have it running in the background. And, like, one of the things that's so brilliant about your book, Morgan, is the way you use the structure to kind of solve that very problem you're talking about. Just I don't want to get into too much detail about the book, but, I mean, the, the book is 12 stories long. And it, it alternates uh, between um, stories that are narrated in the first person by D, who is David, our narrator, as a young adult, and stories that are narrated by David when he's a child. Um, and they mostly, you know, they move forward in time following those two kind of arcs, D's adulthood and D's childhood. So we, we see these things happening to David when he's a kid, um, you know, and we, we kind of are maybe desiring or wanting to see more context or how, right, they, they affect him later. And then we're able to see how they affected David by, by the way D is moving through the world. So it's kind of cool. It's like you're, you're getting um, you know, two different narratives of the same person and you're using time in this way really effectively in the story collection uh, that I was just really impressed with throughout. Um, and it's just an appreciation of, stories give us that ability to really like fuck with time. Yeah, and, yeah. Know, Like you yeah. use it to great effect here. Well, well, thank you, yeah. And I mean, that's also one of the reasons why I didn't write this as a novel. Like when I was looking for agents and stuff, it, Every, if you're a writer and you're querying, an agent is going to, if you have a story collection, they're going to slap you in the face and be like, but do you have a novel? Like, that's what they care about is the novel. And they were always like, if you could turn this into a novel, maybe we can sell it. And I'm like, okay. And I tried to write it as a novel, but the more I tried to write it as a novel, the more I began to break that structure of the book that was working so well. And so then I was kind of like, well, I don't care what publishers are going to want. I don't, I'm not, I don't care because to do that is, is to break this book and to destroy, I think, what is unique about it. So I was like, I'm staying with a story collection. And ultimately, Tin House, who published it, was like, you made the great decision to not ruin this book. And my editor said the same thing. And um, so I tried it as a novel. It didn't, it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, good for you for, for sticking to it. Um, and then like bringing the book that you wanted to bring out into the world. Because that kind of pressure that can seep in from big publishing is is hard to to deal with and that like the complete negative reaction to story collections that's hard too um you know i, I started writing stories or my first love and i would talk about this story collection with an agent or this person and they just kind of tell me i was wasting their time where's the novel same reaction um one of the things that it's also hard to do and that you do really really well in this book in your writing is writing childhood and i, I think like kind of the confusion and the loneliness that is childhood and that feeling of being kind of powerless to what everybody else is doing around you, whether you're watching them do healthy things or unhealthy things. And in Night of the Living Res, like David sees a lot of adults do a lot of unhealthy things. Um, and so for, for me, 
um, kind of writing childhood and writing childhood from the perspective of a kid is hard too. Like a lot of these stories are very close to David at a really young age, right? Like 10 to 14. And you just really capture um, a, a part of childhood that I always related to, which was just feeling like I didn't know how to get out into the world and have any agency and just being kind of the whim of other forces. So maybe you could talk a little bit about you know, do you have ways that you approach writing younger narrators or writing kids or writing childhood? Yeah, that's a great question because it is like, if it, for anybody who writes, you know, from the perspective of a young character, it can be very hard to get that story out in front of a, like adult readership. Yeah, um, and, you know, I had, it was actually to In a Jar. It was a, an editor who passed on a very early version of that. And he so kindly said to me, um, he's like, when you're writing, when you're writing with young characters, with children, um, especially in point of view, you want to consider the adult reader's level of sophistication as well. So there's the character in, in first person, but then there's also the narrator who has knowledge that extends beyond that character on the page. And so the way I approach it is like, okay, I have to think about what the character in this moment would feel like, right? And what they might experience and what it might look like. But the narrator is, I think, much older, even if it's never really specified. You know, there's this level of sophistication that has to come in exposition and um, reflection that's not just in scene by itself. But also, I think, just creating moments where you're not forcing the reader to see something a certain way. You're just letting the scene be as it is, right? And let the kids do what they're going to do. Like, the readers will take that in as they do, right? They'll see them as kids being knuckleheads or, you know, getting in trouble or being good, right? Yeah, it, it's such a delicate balance. Um, and, and I think throughout the book, you resist kind of contextualizing things in a really smart way. Um, and and for, for me, at least, and I think for other readers, it, it allows us to make that kind of connection. Like, we see element A and we see element C, but we're not given, you know, B. We have to figure out that for ourselves. And I, I appreciate and, and like those types of books the most. And just, you know, thinking of Burn, for instance, um, this kind of brings me around to something I'm curious about in your process. You know, you'd very flatly tell us, uh, or Dee tells us about his decision to, you know, start on methadone, even though it's going to prevent him from receiving spiritual treatment from the res doctor or practicing Penobscot spiritual ways. So, like, that's a hugely damaging choice in some ways, but a hugely necessary choice, I think, too, for so many people. And you just put that out there, and you don't unpack Dee's thought process behind it. Um, and I thought that was really brilliant because um, it allows us to start to kind of figure out what is that like for him. And, and throughout the book, I feel like, you know, you continually resist using too much exposition. And then you use interiority to really great effect, uh, particularly when David as a kid is kind of reflecting on um, Frick and his mom's relationship and what's going on with Paige's sister. So just for, for readers here, like, or for the audience, the, the family kind of structure, do you mind if I get into it a little bit here? Yeah, so there's, there's David's... Louder, way louder. So there, there, there's, so there's, da there's David, and then there's his mom, um, and then there's Frick, who comes into their lives very early. I think David's nine when he moves to Indian Island with his mom, roughly. And then you know Frick, who is a, a medicine man on the reservation at times, he comes into their lives, and he is you know um, the mother's boyfriend, and David's kind of like, um, I don't want to say just just a male presence in David's life, right? And then his sister Paige is in and out of their lives and is in the book. So that's kind of like the, the nuclear family that we're with through these 12 stories. Um, 
and uh, so again and again, like we're never given too much. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how you go about not over contextualizing or is, you know, if that's something you address in revision or if you're naturally somebody who avoids kind of the connective tissue to let readers make those connections. Yeah, I think one, I just always try to trust that my reader is smarter than I am Yeah. <laughs> in, in a way. Like, and I think that kind of helps alleviate my having to say stuff um, or spell things out. And the other thing is too, is I feel like, BIPOC writers have to explain everything it seems or that's yeah. been like a like a, like we have to explain our history We have to explain our traumas, you know, and it's like me I'm rather like I'm just gonna let it be and then let people figure it out, you know and think about it um, and, and the other thing too is like I think You know you'd mentioned, you know how D didn't really articulate anything about you right. know his thought process for this stuff and you know my experience with I don't have any experience with addiction, but I have, you know, experience with, you know, people who have suffered from addiction and whether it's drugs or alcohol. And, and I've often found that, you know, a lot of the frustrations that emerge in those sort of relationships with people who are in those situations is because there is something inarticulable. Like we can't, there's something that can't be said um, that we're all struggling to try to say. So I feel like that's a part of like Dee's struggle in this book is he can't say what's a matter. Um, and I think putting that on, putting that burden on the reader, I think pushes them in a situation where they have to like think about, okay, what is it? You know, how do we approach this, right? Like, how do we think about? How do we? I don't want to say deal with because that seems like a negative word, but how do we work with and you know relate to the people in our lives who may be in these similar situations, right? Um, and so for me, it's always like that's real life. Like that is, you know, what life looks like to me. There's always missing context and I'm just trying to capture it as best as I can, I think, without people being like, being like the Amazon review person, just going disappointing, you know, like that's what I want to avoid. Yeah. I, I think it's okay that that person is highly disappointed and that we're, we're not going to worry about that at all. Uh, but that's a great point. Like, I mean, throughout my life, you know, and when members of my family have confronted and struggled with issues of addiction, it's, and you, you know, you get to a point where you need to make a choice about just how to live and how to survive and how to get through to the next thing or the, the next stage or to start to heal. And it's not something that, you know, usually gets sat down and contextualized or fully explained in that way. Um, so, yeah, that makes, that makes sense to me um, from, from that standpoint for sure. I'm wondering, I'm wondering a little bit about, well, in the... I have the galley here, and in the, the galley to the book, the editorial director from Tin House, you know, writes this lovely letter introducing the book, and she talks about one of her first exchanges with you, um, and she, she quotes you, Morgan, as saying that, that, you know, you were invested or interested in this collection in um, kind of correcting or reversing certain ideas about indigeneity, and I'm wondering if you'd be interested or willing to speak to, like, some of those ideas that you're hoping to kind of change with this book. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Um, it's just a really great introduction. Yeah, to, the, to yeah, the, I should have kept it in the book, right? Um, I, I think next printing. Yeah, right. Yeah, but like put it put it back in there. Um, for me, in in this, I, I'm not here to criticize Native American fiction, but there, more so, I'm criticizing sort of Western publishing, really. Um, but there has always been, you know, since Indigenous writers started, you know, producing fiction and, and publishing it and nonfiction, you know, there's been this push to 
I'll, I'm going to quote a scholar, an indigenous scholar, Louise Owens, you know, this push to offer an easy, comfortable, colorful tour of Indian country for the reader um, and not really challenge them. So show them what they think they know about Native people. Um, and editors have done this not just with Native writers, they've done it with other marginalized voices as well, being like, you Absolutely. need to, like, this doesn't feel authentic. Um, I think it's Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie wrote, wrote um, who's an African writer, Nigerian writer, um, and she wrote, um, one of her first novels in her undergrad, which she said herself was very bad and that it failed on so many levels, but her professor was like, um, this, this, this doesn't work. These characters are too much like me, and he was a white guy. Um, and she's like, well, why can't they be like you? you know? So there's like this authenticity question that's always been um, between publishers and readers and like making sure, catering to what they think readers want to read. And so. I've seen it sprinkled here and there um, in indigenous fiction. One indigenous writer who I won't name does it all the time. Um, and you know, so I was always very conscious early on being like, I don't want to feed into any sort of, you know, any type of those stereotypes. And like the interesting thing is, is like there's alcoholism in here, which is like <laughs> which is like a trope, or, or you can say is a trope. There's a drug addiction, you know, there's there's all these things in here that I think people see in indigenous fiction, but also see in other fiction, but I always was careful in the way I was like, I'm never gonna situate this stuff next to, you know, indigeneity. I'm like, it's always gonna be situated next to them as a person. And it's interesting to hear people talk about this book, you know, that, that people are so quick to be like, this is a representation of the Penobscot Indian nation. I'm like, no, it's not. Like, yeah. like please do not think that this represents, you know, even a fraction of, you know, that sort of culture. and. This is really just about one person's point of view in this book that we get. Um, you know, like you said, we don't have third person, it's just first person. So really, you know, we're, we're only seeing this sliver of this experience. And like, that's intentional in and of itself because like, I would never want to monopolize that experience. Like, I would not want to have, I wouldn't want the book to say something that isn't true, I guess. And whether or not I did that, that's up to readers, but I, I feel like I did. Yeah, I think you did um, absolutely accomplish that and do that throughout the book. And, you know, so so it is it's, it's like it's important to note here that, you know, this is the first time I think in, in you know, fiction that we've encountered Penobscot stories from a Penobscot writer. And, you know, there are what are they, like 570 federally recognized tribes in, in this country and many others that are unrecognized. Um, so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about just if it feels like there's a movement towards finally seeing or having more voices from indigenous nations in this country, or like what's happening with the shift there, um, you know, and I also want to acknowledge too that, you know, that this book is more than just like, you know, indigenous fiction, right? That, you know, we, you know, publishing loves to put writers and labels and artists and labels, and there's such a great universality to this um, that, uh, that comes out throughout. Yeah, I think there's, you know, I can. I'm quick to criticize publishing and all and all of that stuff, but there are too. so yeah. But there are a lot of good people out there doing a lot of good yeah. work to make it make it so that these books are coming out, that these voices are being heard, um, and like there, people are just putting in a lot of work. You know, writers, but also people inside the business, um, and sort of luck is kind of like it's like the opportune time. You know, that right. that this stuff is sort of happening, and you know, I feel like. 
I don't know why it's, it's happening now. I think people are just hungry for stories that are not these recycled narratives that we keep getting over and over again because if we think about it, like we are encountering more media than ever before, right? Sure. You know, on your phone, you know, social media, Netflix, who, you know, all these, like there's constantly stuff coming at us. And with that, we're going to see all the same stuff over again. So yeah. I think people are wanting, you know, diversity. They're wanting stories that aren't, you know, the same old tale in, in a way. And I think it's just sort of the right time for it. And I also think writers who have come before me have sort of, really done hard work to, to right. create this space um, like Louise Erdrich you know for example um, and I mean Tommy Orange's book that came out a couple of years ago um, I think really kind of paved the way for this broader spectrum of voices um, to be heard and I'm glad that that's happening oh absolutely yeah um, I was I was thinking of well thinking of both like Tommy Orange's book, obviously, and Louise Erdrich's book, and, and so many other, like, wonderful, like, linked story collections that have that power of, like, existing as a novel on their own, and how this kind of fits into that, that lineage and tradition, uh, both of indigenous and non-indigenous writers, like, like, so very well. Um, I want to talk a little bit about humor, if you're open to talking about that. Um, so, Again and again in the story is like really dark things really bad things happen like these characters struggle with like extremely um, tr traumatic um, events and like the, the way that you kind of come around and make Things that might not seem funny funny is a real bomb like even Felis's hair being frozen Like into the ground right like that's a really scary thing that's happening for him And it's a really tragic thing and like he has to cut his hair and deal with that and then you know of course, Dee's got this really annoying thing he has to deal with then, like, do I take the hair first or get the hair after, and how do I juggle all this? So it's just, it's hilarious. Um, and, and, and I think, like, there's other moments in the book, like, Food for the Common Cold is one of my favorite stories, and it's a story that, for, for me, like, balances the way you deliver really hard, traumatic um, events and kind of a reckoning with the past with this absurdist humor in the present. And I won't get into too much detail, but... Um, you know, there, there's a moment in the story, David's, David's young in the story, um, Frick and his mom are kind of on the outs a little, um, and, and, you know, something is kind of, there's something that, that Frick is holding back, and there's something that the mom is holding back, and we've been able to tell that for several stories, and uh, David, David kind of bonds with Frick when they go to look for, for the mom when she's disappeared, she's not at home. And we, we learned something about Frick's past that's like a huge revelation and, and really hard. And then we learned something about David's mom's past that's a huge revelation and really hard. And the hope, I think, for David's mom is that that will then bring them closer together. And I, I don't think sharing like what happens to them is what brings them together. What seems to bring them together in the story is like the fact that there's a terrible smell in the house when they come home. And the, the smell turns out to be a turtle, I think a snapper that had been like rotting underneath the porch for, for a long time. So like the, the medicine in this, in this story or the cure for what they're going through is just laughter. And like they bond all night long and joke about like making turtle soup and you know, this awful turtle that's in the walls. And it's a really dark and you know, disturbing image, but a great image. Um, it's an image we could like unpack symbolically a lot, but we won't do that right now. So it's just funny, um, and it's perfectly timed. And it's not just like a small moment. I think maybe the last third of the story is highly focused on the turtle. Yeah. So 
Y yeah, thank you. I, I think, I don't, I never, like, I always say, like, if you try to be funny or not funny, like, that's just, like, so I'm never, I never try to, like, do humor in my work, but, like, I look for moments where maybe something can, can be funny and I try to, like, play with it. Or if, I, if I'm making myself laugh, then, I, then I'm like, this is good or it's really bad. Um, <laughs> but I always go for, you know, it's good and I leave it there until somebody's like, this is stupid. And then I'm like, okay, I'll take it out. Um, but I think I heard somebody say once, like, if you can make somebody laugh, you can bring them to the darkest depths of, like, wherever. Um, and... You know, for me growing up, laughter was just, was medicine in a lot of different ways, you know. I'm thinking about any time there was a terrible moment, like, you know, and there were tears shed and, you know, there was, you know, just a breakdown, for example. I always remember the thing that came after that was something funny. Like, there was always something that my family and I found funny in any traumatic <laughs> situation. Um, and, you know, like, one, my mom, like, had this serious, like, she was constantly ill. She had loop, she passed away last year, but she was constantly sick with lupus. She had a lot of problems, and she, she fell and had, like, a spiral break in her leg. And she, she was in the hospital, and, you know, she was cursing and crying, and then she goes, she says something, she's like, I'm, you know, I'm in the hospital so goddamn often, nobody sends me flowers anymore. <laughs> um, and so, like, she, like, she was always very funny, like, quick-witted and, and so I feel like I kind of took a lot of that from her and but just personally like I know how important humor is you know to moments where there's like such tense you know tragedy you know and I, it, it's a coping mechanism in, in one way you know to maybe deflect some of the pain right. um, but it's also I think a way to release some of that pain as well and I just tried to find those moments because if the book is like if a book is just purely like bad event after bad event it's like you're just beating somebody over the head with that stuff and it's like there has to be something funny to keep them alive in a sense so yeah it's, it's so true and um it's, it's similar in my life you know any any time that something awful happened there was usually something absurd or funny right after and it's, it's interesting that you bring up the, the, the character of the mom in the book um she's an amazing character and probably by far my favorite character in the book and I know in, in like in my own life, you know, there were there were times when, um, you know, my sister and I would be with our mom at a crisis center um, and, and go through some of those experiences where she would she had health problems on and off again and, and you know, other things she struggled with. Um, and right up until the end of her life, uh, she died um, last year. Yeah. So not long after your mom. but Yeah. So right right up to the end of her life, you know, there were just funny things in these sad institutionalized settings again and again and again um whether it was jokes about like breaking me out or you know i'm gonna you know go home and do whatever i want or you know i need to make sure i have you know new outfits just in case they move me to a new facility on and on and on stuff like that um but the mom's character is, is amazing in the book and one of the things that i love about how you've written her is how she shows this like this love that can be really tender at times but it can also be kind of fucked up at the same time in ways um and also like she vacillates towards being really distant to david at times and then you know being super close with him and she's always there she's just unabiding presence at the same time and i just appreciated how true that felt um and like you know there's there's the moment in in you know i think it's in a i don't i think it's in a jar one of the early stories where you know, she's talking about like when Grammy comes by, we need to go and like hide in the back bedroom and turn the lights off and act like we're not home. 
And I'm like, yeah, okay, I, I, I know that maneuver. <laughs> and then that, that's, that's funny and feels really true. And then there's other times in the book, like later on, there's a, there's a story, um, I won't get too much into the details here, but the grandma suffers from Alzheimer's and she starts to mistake David for her brother who died at about David's age. And the, the mom tells David that like, when he's over at Grammy's house and she starts to mistake him for his uncle, her brother, just to go with it. And for me, like, there was such a tenderness and a compassion there. Um, it, it felt like a, an act of, of love in this way that surprised me a little bit. Um, so it's just an, an appreciation. Uh, later on in the book, you know, David's like cribbing cigarettes, right, from his mom. And she knows. Moms always know when you're like nicking cigarettes from them. Like, they don't not know. So she, later in the story, slides or leaves a pack of smokes in his bedroom, like, with a note that says, like, savor them. And it's, it's like, sweet, but he's 14. So it's like, um, uh, okay. yeah, that's love, though, in its own way. So it was just, just way to go, way to write, like, a complicated mom. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to open it up here for audience questions. I know we're probably getting up against it time-wise. And then if, you know, if other people don't have questions, I've got a few more free, Morgan. But please, uh, don't be shy. At this point in the conversation, audience members were invited to ask Greg and Morgan some questions. Some audience members chose not to use the microphone. So for the purpose of this podcast, their questions have been re-recorded. Can you please talk about the connection between the unspoken and what you call the inarticulate and uh, the enormous number of cigarettes in this book? I just can't get over the cigarettes in a good way. I'm glad it was a good way. I had a, a mentor um, who was like, he's like, there's a lot of cigarettes in this book. And, and he's like, it's okay for the stories, but make sure you cut them out for the book. I forgot to do that, apparently. Um, so, but there is. Yeah, and I think this idea of the inarticulable is, is sort of like, I don't even know if I have an answer because it's still something I think I'm trying to like figure out. And like, I think it's one of the things that keeps me writing is like, I, you know, I write because I feel like there's something that I, I'm trying to learn or something to know. And I don't think I'll ever know it. Um, but I feel like it has something to do with what it means to exist, what it means to be, what it means to love and care and hate and deal with the people we love and hate and you know feel indifferent towards and and so i think a lot of our a lot of our problems i think come from our inability to communicate with people like to actually say something um you know to to speak up you know to have like kind of the, the bravery in, in a way to say something but also our in actual inability to articulate how we feel um which is why i think reading is 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 so valuable because i think i think it was ocean Vyong, the, the poet and novelist who had a article in the New Yorker, and he said something, he's like, when I read fiction, that's when I feel most alive. Um, like, almost like he was able to slow down to really understand what it means to be human. And I think literature has that ability to give us insight into what it means to really be, you know, to exist. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's the best I can. Can you connect the sheer volume of cigarettes to the idea of the inarticulate? I think I can't explain it. But, but I know, it's just like growing up, everybody was constantly smoking. Like it was a thing, like it was just like, cigarette here, cigarette there, cigarette everywhere. Um, and my mother would just like have a cigarette and it would have like an ash this long and then she'd light another one. 
And I'd be like, you have one going. And she's like, oh, shit, do I? Yep. And then she'd set that one down. And she, yeah, it was weird. She'd buy a pack, but she'd smoke like one because she'd just let the others burn. Um, but yeah, there was just constantly smoke and smoke around. And um, yeah, I think that just had to happen <laughs> in the book. <laughs> Yeah, there were no fidget spinners. It was, it was cigarettes and, yeah, yeah. Throughout the conversation, you were talking a lot about the different aspects that made this book very difficult to bring to publication. I'm wondering if you can talk about your process of weeding through the feedback that wasn't the feedback you needed to hear to make your stories better. How do you differentiate between this is the feedback I need versus the feedback that isn't really what I'm focusing on? Yeah, I had, um, <laughs> I was in a workshop once, and the, the professor leading the workshop, he had my manuscript, and he was sitting next to me, and somebody had, gave a comment about what I should do in this story, and I saw him write, please don't, on, on the manuscript, and, um, and I wasn't going to do it anyways, but I think, um, I, I, you know, I, I don't know, I just like, when I started writing, I, what I didn't go into a workshop environment. I, you know, the first class I ever took, I worked one-on-one -on -one with um, a professor, and like that was how it how it worked. Um, so I wasn't. By the time I got into workshop, I kind of had this sense of what worked in my writing and what didn't, even though I was still figuring out how I worked. So I'm not bashing workshops as like don't do workshops if you want to learn how to write. Like do workshops, but understand like you're going to get so much feedback that can be very subjective and not very helpful. Um, but as for sort of differentiating the two, I think the more you write, the more you become used to what it is you're writing and how you're writing it. Um, and I think just, this is a bullshit number, but 90% of the feedback you get won't be helpful. Just So choose like, if, if there's 10 things you were given, cut nine of them, choose one. That, that's my advice. <laughs> You said earlier about your story burned that you had heard a yeah. story from someone who had heard the story from someone else. Uh, I'm interested in oral history, and I'm wondering if there was an oral history component of your process of writing this book. Oh, um, if orality was something that was... Yeah, yeah, I think... I mean, I didn't start writing until I was like 18. Um, I hated reading and writing growing up. I just absolutely hated it. Um, but I loved storytelling. I loved hearing stories. I loved, you know, making stories up. I loved, you know, I just remember hanging out with friends either in the woods or in my shed or, you know, anywhere. And I just would always constantly retell the stuff that had happened to us and usually the funny stuff. And so that's where I first started to learn, I think, the art of storytelling in a way. Um, and the, the other thing too is my mother was constantly telling stories. Like something would happen to her and immediately she'd be on the phone with my aunt telling them, but she would get so many of the details wrong. <laughs> and like, I, I don't know if she did it on accident or if it was on purpose. Like, I don't know, but I, I really learned a great skill from her with like making stuff up to make the story sound better. But like a lot of her stories didn't even need like, fabrication like they were just like stranger than fiction like these kids were barking at our dog one time and so she decided to shoot at him with a bb gun you know like you can't like a lot of these things about her you could not make up and so it's like how do you do that in fiction then right and obviously i couldn't because it's not in the book um you know it's so hard but you know as as i write i sort of hear it in my head as as a story being told um you know i always read my work out loud um 
to see if it can exist, you know, out, you know, without the page. Um, and I think, you know, oral storytelling is a great thing, and it's, it's I think, underappreciated in a lot of ways. Hi, um, Martin. You mentioned earlier in the talk about um, hearing this name, Fellas, in the morning. It's kind of like just popping in your head. I'm wondering if you could either talk more about that or if there were other kind of like more abstract things or things that maybe didn't make into the stories that were with you over the course of producing the book. They were almost kind of like, I don't know if, you know, kind of like when you have a bird in the yard and you kind of get to know the bird, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. I think it'd actually be interesting to go back and look through all of the stuff that's not in the book and to see like what percentage of it is just that, those things that come into your mind, you know, randomly. Um, but I don't know. I would just like, I swear to God, I could, in the morning, I could just sit for like four hours and drink coffee. Like I, I literally just could do that. Um, and I just sort of like space out and I'm like, I get high off the morning and I just start thinking and I'm like, I just started to hear that name, Fellas. I don't know where it came from. Apparently, somebody sent me, there was this Fellas gallery on Facebook. I don't know what it is, but it's spelled F-E-L-I-S and Fellas is, I guess, like a type of cat or like a word for a cat. Um, I don't think it had anything to do with that, like subconsciously. I don't think I've ever heard it before. Um, but like, I, I don't know if this is really your question, but like I have like a lot of appreciation for those quiet moments where you're by yourself and you're listening to yourself and to what maybe you don't say or share with people because like I feel like that's super conductive to, you know, authenticity in a way, right? You know, like bringing to the light this stuff that's just buried deep down in the subconscious. But I think there's a lot of stuff like that that didn't make it in the book, but I feel like that's where I usually start with drafts is like that weird abstract stuff. And then I'm like, nobody would care about this. <laughs> so then I, gotta, then I gotta cut it out and be like, I'll write a story that works, so. Uh, I don't want this conversation to end. That was such a great, thoughtful conversation. Um, so thank you both for being here. Thank you all for being here and um, spending your evening with us.